This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Did you watch the Olympics? There were inspiring athletes, but what did you learn about Japan? Catherine Braben has written about a group of people in Japan I had never heard of, and it's also the title of her book, The Shut-Ins. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having me. In my mind, I have a stereotype of a Japanese businessman. You call him a salary man. How would you explain my stereotype? Mm-hmm. So I'd see that salary man type as the one who has the real, real faith in the company, really, um, really believes in, in their job. Um, they get up early, they put on a suit, they go to work, they work long hours, they go home very late at night, usually commuting on the train. They often socialise late at night or be away mm-hmm. from home and may pay for female company, not prostitutes. The wealthy would have had geishas. A salary man may have a bar girl. But what would be a salary man's expectation of his own wife at home? Uh, in general, the salary man expectations would, I imagine, be quite traditional. The woman staying at home, childbearing, not really pursuing uh, a career of their own. So your book, The Shut-Ins, is about those who don't fit in or don't mm. want to fit in. They're called hikikimori. Can you explain that a bit more? A hikikimori is a person generally defined as someone who hasn't left their home in six months or longer. So generally they stay in their room, sometimes in the family home. And the term in Japanese translates withdrawn and shut away, closed off. The word gained prominence in Japan sort of in the 90s when some young people in particular, men and women, started sort of rejecting that path of going towards the salaryman life in the company. But in the absence of really knowing how to rebel or how to be sort of working against that, they stayed in their rooms. And so it's, there's thought to be over a million hikikomori in Japan today. Just incredible. But this is not a psychological textbook. There is a note-taking author who is writing a travel journal. So this is where I'm going to get Catherine to read just a little bit about something I think we do know from page 132. I changed trains at Hakata. Inside the bullet train, it was cool. The sense of absolute order through the carriages calmed me. In the cities, even the most crowded subway carriages have a subdued peace about them. The station's a flood of ordered crowds. People had said this to me, the order in Japan, the calmness, the polite and placid nature of the people. You will see it, they said. I saw it and I wondered what was on the other side of their faces. Mm. So this narrator, she's not only writing about what she was seeing but what she was feeling. Why was she travelling through Japan by herself? The note sections came from my own experience of going to Japan and they took a fictional turn to write this story and research a lot of the places, uh, particularly the seasons and the feeling of the weather really ended up being in, in the novel in sort of the characters' fictional sections. But then I wanted to have an observing Western narrator to really position myself. But she was drawn there and I was drawn there 
for that interest in in Japan, but also in these ideas um, of the other side. And like I talk about the other side of their faces um, that the narrator wants to know, but also this other side that seems to propel a lot of the, the characters in the book. So the other side of their life now, the other side of their, their room, the world out there. I, I was interested in that concept um, and, and what it could mean for all of these characters. Use the term looking for Akiragawa. Yes, so Achiragawa translates as uh, over there or the other side. And that concept, I guess, was a real entry point into the book for me, but also into Japanese culture. I, I don't speak Japanese, so for me, it was um, a matter of researching a lot of Western sources, but also reading a lot of translated literature. And one of the authors who's very well known, Haruki Murakami, has been written about in, in the sense that people say he writes about the other side, about Achiragawa. So characters go to this other side, other place, sort of our subconscious, but sort of also our longing. My entry point into you know, the novel was to sort of explore this idea of Achiragawa across a number of characters. I think it, it became for me like what's on the other side of our desires, what's on the other side of our expectations, what is this other side we feel drawn to and feel like we want to pursue? Is it also our subconscious? Is it our longings? Um, so the word sort of just became a bit of an opening for me really into writing about these things. Well, she's planning to meet a friend of a friend on her last days in Tokyo. Their emails become more than just where and when they're going to meet. They become personal. You bring in this context of perhaps it's easier to write something personal than actually say it. Yes, I really, I like that you've brought that out. I Expressing perhaps something that the characters feel, but potentially also there's maybe a, a metafictional element there of my own um, experiences, I guess, as a as a writer. I feel like those, the character, the narrator talking to that friend of a friend, they create their own sort of other side, other space where they can be very open and honest about what they are maybe scared of, what they long for. They create sort of a bit of an other side. Writing letters was also the connection between school friends Hikaru and May. Mm. Why is Hikaru's mother paying May to write letters to him? Mm. So this is something I, I came across in my research and it just really interested me was this idea that families um, do struggle to know what to do when their child is a hikikomori. So there are some support groups out there, but there is also a culture of shame and maybe even suspicion around somebody who has um, been perceived to fail though follow to follow that path. So one way of trying to encourage their, their children out of their rooms is to ask somebody to write to them. So there's this sort of phrase rental sister uh, in the sense of somebody to befriend the hikikomori, essentially write to them and try to encourage them out of their room. And I've watched documentaries where this has been successful as a way to sort of encourage someone very gently to connect with the world. Doesn't always work, but in this situation, Mai and Hikaru aren't strangers. Um, some person Hikaru's mother's really desperate and just mm. sees Mai one day in the train station and thinks, oh, I'm going to ask you to write to him. Um, and that sort of really kicks off that part of the story. But as you say, as May is writing the letters, she's also expressing her own unhappiness. 
So why is she unhappy? Yes, well, that I guess brings us back to our discussion of the salary man at the start of this conversation and how um, there are expectations on women to live a certain way. So Mai is married to a salary man. She is working in a part-time job, but he sort of sees that as a bit of a, a hobby and thinks, oh, well, you'll, you'll get pregnant soon, you'll stop work. And Mai's sort of feeling a lot of discomfort, but not quite sure how to express it. And in the book, I guess, while it's important for Hikaru to suddenly be receiving these letters from Mai, her writing them opens up a bit of a other side for her. She starts to wonder, well, what might it be? What, what would it be like if I rejected the path that I seem to be going down? And again, a Chirogawa came up as an idea of like, well, what's what's a Chirogawa for Mai? What's what is she longing for? And I really liked that way that the, the letters, as you say, could sort of create a bit of a, a space for something more to happen in Mai's life. So Mai's husband is paying a bar girl, Sudoku, to impersonate his wife. But for Sudoku, the bar girl, this brings up certain shame in knowing she will never be a loved wife, only a pretend person this whole thing about shame and then we go to Hikaru's mm. mother. So Hikaru's mother has grown up in very traditional Japanese family structures and believes that you know her role is to you know raise a child to make them you know do well at high school primary school get in get a career that sort of thing and she feels that her son has failed she she sort of calls him her her failed son although she loves him mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of a refrain that she repeats a fair bit. But then she feels that shame because she feels that it was her role and that she's failed in her role. And her husband puts that pressure on her. I really wanted to convey how it felt sort of generational um, in the sense that this phenomenon impacts across across the, the generations in a family. But there's also these, this sense of shame that seems to sort of permeate through. Hikaru sees that his mother is retreating from the world, but his father, he comes home less and less. Now he is just a cold wind that passes through the house late at night and departs in the morning. Rather sad. Look, we often Mm. hear about Japan and suicides. You know, they are Mm. dealt in a very different way there. You know, if someone jumps in front of a train, their family members must pay, just as the suicide in the book happens, that it's the family that have to pay mm. to clean up the building. It, but it's not what the shut-ins want. They all have a desire to live, not die. And mm. this is at the last words from Hikaru from page 242. I hope that one day I will wake up, the spring air will be fresh. I will get dressed and walk down a quiet street without fear. I will have somewhere to go and I will enjoy the cherry blossom wind on my face. So we have many characters who want a different life. There's the story of a woman who left her husband because of adultery, not with another person, just because she wanted somewhere else more than him. And then Sadako's grandfather, he was offered a different life in a most unusual circumstance. How did he gain his other life? Yeah, it's really interesting that you bring up Sadako. I haven't had the chance to talk about her often. So Sadako works as a hostess in a bar in Tokyo and she leaves the city when her father is unwell and she goes to stay with him in this small um, spa town um, not far from Tokyo. 
and she sort of gets talking um, to her to her father and is able to sort of connect with him in ways she hasn't in a long time. And she sort of finds out this this interesting fact that he was supposed to be uh, a kamikaze pilot in World War II, but then just as his day was, his appointed day was um, was coming up, the war ended, the, the surrender happened. And so this life that he'd sort of agreed to cut short for that country didn't happen. So he had this other, yeah, this whole other life that then gave Sadako's father and Sadako her life. And I've actually read about that as a true, a true um, situation. So I was sort of always quite shaken and moved by that idea of another life or a, a potential life that may not have happened. My, she had said Japan is an unstable place, quoting from the book. We live on fault lines beneath the earth so you can never see the pressure building under us. And that's what this whole book feels like, this, this swelling mm. of there's going to have to be something to change the stereotype. It just doesn't work anymore. Yes, I, I was very interested in how the the natural environment can sort of give give voice to that feeling of the, the cultural environment. So, you know, Japan does have, you know, that volatile climate in the sense of being very prone to earthquakes and the, and the tsunami um, that, that happened um, back in 2011. So I think that sort of gave voice to that sense of, you know, behind control, maybe behind a sense of order, there perhaps is is sort of an unhappiness. Um, and I think I was interested to explore that because I'm interested in that for many cultures, not just Japan. I think most cultures sort of live by certain structures that are sort of unquestioned. So I, yeah, exploring that through Japan was one way that I that I was able to. Japanese life is steeped in traditions, but four interconnected characters tell of how a different life can be lived in the shut-ins by Catherine Braben. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Jan. Really enjoyed it. And now it's David's turn. Part cold case, part intrigue, part missing person and murder investigation, Charlie Donnelly's 20 Years Later uncovers past lives to resolve current crimes. So, Charlie, welcome to 3CR. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. This is virtually three stories in one. A cold case murder, and then we have an investigative journalist with a chequered past, and then a burnt-out FBI agent reactivated to spy on the investigative journalist. So we need to tease all these out. The cold case and Victoria Ford... And this is linked to the Twin Towers collapse. Tell us a little about what was the inspiration behind that. I think it was in 2016. Uh, I read that the first positive identification had been made of the remains of a 9-11 victim. It was the first positive ID made in years in New York. And so I started digging into that read the article, I started digging into the story, and I actually ended up getting in touch with one of the head directors of the New York Medical Examiner's Office, where they do these this DNA studies. On, um, and what I didn't know was there's about 20,000 remains still left unidentified that they've gathered from ground zero. But it also speaks to that notion of lost lives, lost pasts but 
that then becomes intriguing because we now have a lost murder investigation and the suspect is Victoria Ford. Correct. So Victoria Ford was accused of a murder in 2001. as gruesome murder and she actually is in New York and she's in uh, the North Tower of the World Trade Center on the morning of 9-11 meeting with her attorney in order to, to mount a defense against the, this accusation of murder. And you meet Victoria only briefly, um, and then 9-11 happens, and you know we know her fate. But the interesting part about this when I was sort of researching this was there was actually an old uh, HBO documentary called McMillions, which was an FBI investigation into a scam that someone ran, a con man ran on the McDonald's Monopoly game. And the FBI had this whole investigation set up and they were about to serve indictments and then 9-11 happened and the investigation went up in smoke. And so I combined those two ideas and what ended, what the story came was this detective was investigating Victoria Ford for a murder, um, a gruesome murder in, in New York. And he had all his evidence lined up and all his ducks lined up in a nice row. And he was about to arrest her and serve her with an indictment and then 9-11 happened and she, she died in 9-11. This then brings us to the next layer, Avery Mason, who happens to be an investigative journalist, but she also has a past life. So there's another layer of complexity here. And I think you're also having a bit of a go at investigative journalism as well. So yeah, Avery Mason is the uh, host of a show called American Events, which in the United States would be the equivalent of Dateline or 2020. And um, she's this popular, dogged uh, investigative journalist. And she hears about the case of uh, Victoria Ford's remains being identified. And so she heads to New York to tell that story. Um, and to meet Victoria Ford's family. But what what Avery learns when she gets to New York is that um, Victoria was involved in this murder investigation at the time of 9-11. And so Avery gets sort of lured into reopening or reinvestigating the murder from 20 years ago. And she obviously starts learning uh, and starts finding evidence that is different than the narrative from 20 years ago. But Avery also has a past. Right. So Avery Mason is, uh, she struggles with her fame because she never wanted fame. But uh, in the last year or two, her show has become the biggest show in America. And um, she ha has sort of the hot lights of Hollywood and the entire country focused on her because of her sudden rise to fame. And what the TV executives don't know and what her television audience don't know is this sort of secret past, not so much Avery has, but that her family has. Her, her family has a notorious white collar criminal family that she is trying to escape uh, the notoriety of. And so she's walking a very fine line of embracing her fame, but at the same time trying not to let anyone in the television audience or at the network know anything about her past and her family's past. In fact, her father operated a Ponzi scheme and has disappeared. This brings us then to the third layer, which is Walt 
Jenkins, who was the original investigator of the Victoria Ford case, but now the FBI are recruiting him again, even though he's suffering from a sort of survivor guilt himself, to find out more about Victoria and whether he can help solve the mystery of the disappearance of Avery's father. Correct. And that's sort of uh, where a lot of the fun of the book comes in, because Walt, by his own definition, is a cliche. I mean, he was a detective. His case went up in smoke during 9-11. He was then recruited into the FBI to become a counterterrorism surveillance agent, as was very common back in 2001 and two and three. And he, he was involved with this scandal involving his partner. And you're correct, David, he's, he's sort of running from survivor's guilt. And he calls himself a cliche because he, he goes to Jamaica for what he thinks will be a month of sort of clearing his head. And then we find him there three years later, having never left the island of Jamaica. In fact, Walt is doing a lot of research into rum. Yes, he has a uh, strong uh, attraction to single malt Jamaican rum and uh, perhaps too strong of an attraction. Did this require a lot of research on your part? <laughs> well, I, I'm a vodka drinker, um, but uh, I did have to dip into rum a little bit to see what it was all about. Uh, and people drink rum just like they drink scotch and bourbon on, on the rocks with nothing else. But um, true rum drinkers, there's, uh, uh, there's aficionados of rum, and Walt Jenkins is one of them. Now, rather than going into the storylines in greater detail, because there are too many clues and too much would be given away as to what actually happens when these three storylines converge, how were you, as an author, able to juggle these disparate lines? Uh, well, you know, people ask all the time, how, you know, how do you write a book? And I always tell people it's not, you know, it's not a linear process. I don't start on chapter one and six months later finish with the final chapter. There's a lot of outlining and a lot of reworking of the story. Walt Jenkins, who is arguably the second main character of the book after Avery, when I started the manuscript, he was a tiny secondary character. His story exploded as I started writing him and the whole idea of him going undercover to spy on, on Avery to find out where her father is, that all came out like about a quarter of the way through the book. So how do you keep it all straight? I, I don't always. I mean, I get through about 100 pages and then you have to go back and with all your new ideas, rework those 100 pages, then you go to the next part of the book. But when the book came together, when all these, you're, you're describing, David, the book really perfectly. When these three stories of an old murder investigation that went up in smoke with 9-11, TV journalists investigating it, and now an FBI agent sort of pulled out of retirement to go undercover. When those three stories, when I could see them separately, and then I could see how they would merge that's when I love writing books because then, you know, once you get past about a, the halfway or 60% mark, now you know the story and now you know where you want the story to go. And that ends up being a lot of fun. But also then the moral complexity, the human element, there's a relationship that forms between Walt and Avery. And yet Walt's meant to be spying on her. Avery's meant to be hiding her past. 
Right. And that was another part uh, that I loved writing. My very first novel was a novel called Summit Lake. There was a quasi, quasi love story in that. Um, that was mostly a mystery, mostly a suspense novel. This book was the first time I actually revisited the idea of two characters, not, not falling in love, but two characters having a relationship that sort of develops as the story goes along. And I know that the feedback I've gotten from readers is that they really loved the dynamic between Avery and Walt, because it obviously starts off on a very different footing than it ends on. But it also brings in the human element. But you're also then playing on a series of tropes here. The novel starts in a very conventional way with the discovery of a dead body, but that's part of the cold case. You're also in some ways parodying some of what goes on in investigative journalism and having perhaps a go at authors because you've got Walt reading John Grisham of all things. So how much is fun? How much is actual truth? Well, I think if anyone's ever gotten lured into watching a true crime documentary. It is amazing. If you watch about 20 minutes of it, you just can't stop watching because you have to see how it ends. Um, and it's always set up as the person that seems most guilty of the crime ends up being innocent. And the person who seemed innocent ends up being most guilty. And so there is a little bit of a play on that because I think that these true crime documentaries have just blown up in the last couple of years and they all have sort of the same format to them. They're, they're a little formulaic. And so what I liked doing with this story was Avery was after one type of story and she got lured into investigating a, a, an entirely different story that she didn't know existed. But yeah, that was a lot of fun to write. Well, basically there is an outcome to the cold case, which is unexpected. You've also played on the trope of, yes, innocence and guilt, but the uh, reader and the listener is going to have to find that out for themselves. So the book is 20 years later. The author is Charlie Donnelly, and it is a Penguin Random House release. So, Charlie, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thanks a lot, David. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.